Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Arielle Cassian. I'm a member of the Speech Pathology Australia Early Career Reference Group, as well as being the Speech Pathology Australia WA Branch Admin Assistant. I work across acute and rehabilitation wards at Hollywood Private Hospital in Perth. Part of the enticement to the profession of speech pathology includes the ability to transfer our skills across a variety of settings and delivery formats. Telepractice is one such service delivery model that has certainly gained increased interest in recent years in response to the outbreak of COVID-19. However, telepractice has potential to be used as more than just an option when there's a lockdown. In fact, rather the opposite, it can extend our services beyond borders nationally and even internationally. Here to tell us more, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Claire Salter-Parry and Nathan cornish Rayley. Thanks for chatting with me today. Claire is a country country kid who has mostly worked in rural and remote parts of northern Australia since graduating from Charles Stewart University in 2003. She's worked across multiple sectors in that time. She also spent two years working for OIC Cambodia and now works as the clinical services manager for UMBO, an online provider of OT and speech pathology. Claire's passion areas are culturally fair assessment, multilingualism, management, and governance. Nathan is a speech pathologist and professional support advisor at Speech Pathology Australia. He he supports sparse telepractice initiatives and development of the new position statement on international telepractice. To start, it'd be really beneficial to hear why Speech Pathology Australia developing a position statement of international telepractice. Uh, Absolutely. And there's a couple of reasons, but they're really driven by what you mentioned, uh, Arielle, is that there's been a big uptake of telepractice and general interest in this space. Um, So since the beginning of the pandemic, so many speech pathologists in Australia and overseas have gained experience with telepractice and they see its potential to provide services to people in other countries and feel motivated to go for those opportunities when they come up. Um, also, you know, Australia's borders have reopened and speech pathologists have been interested in how they can use international telepractice to provide some continuity of services while they or their clients are traveling abroad. So a lot of professionals and members of the public have contacted SPA wanting to know if they can engage in international telepractice service um, in a really quickly expanding range of scenarios. So as a profession, we felt it was important to clarify 
the practice requirements for international telepractice as part of our duty of care to ensure that quality services are being provided to members of the public in Australia, but also by Australian speech pathologists to people overseas. And, you know, of course, telepractice in Australia has always been subject to the same professional standards and ethical requirements as any other service delivery method. But it was important to help practitioners have a clearer picture of how those requirements might apply to some often pretty complex circumstances. Um, you know, in addition to that, it was important for the association to offer some guidance on the considerations that need to be made before providing an international telepractice service. So again, during the pandemic, I think that as a profession, so many of us had to quickly learn how to do telepractice ethically and effectively um, and speech pathologists gained a lot of knowledge and confidence in service well, but telepractice within Australia is also a different situation to providing a service across national borders or where the service users are communicating in another language or context and have access to different resources. So this uh, position statement is meant to help speech pathologists think about the range of considerations they should make related to logistics and professional or legal requirements, um, and importantly, cultural responsiveness and sustainability before they head into international telepractice. All very valid considerations, definitely. So if a speech pathologist is providing services to someone who is going to relocate or travel overseas, can these services be continued through telepractice? And what would a speech pathologist need to consider? Yeah, um, so there's a couple of things from the association standpoint, and I'm really interested to hear, um, you know, Claire's thoughts on this as well. But uh, like many things in life, the answer is it depends. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it depends on a, a number of factors. Like uh, most importantly, we need to consider the needs of the person receiving the service. So an international telepractice service uh, might provide them with continuity of those services, which is great. But we also need to think about how well um, their needs can actually be met through telepractice or if they're missing out on another service or resources at their location by continuing to engage with us. Um, you know, we also need to understand the practice requirements where that client will be located. So uh, even if the individual is overseas temporarily, a complaint or a legal issue could be investigated in that location. So each country has the right to determine how speech pathology practice um, occurs within its borders. Um, so, you know, the speech pathologist, the situation, we need to find out things like uh, professional and ethical standards, professional licensure or registration, whether those are required, um, whether they need a qualifications assessment, police checks, um, policy related to health information and, and data privacy. Those are some big things there. Um, you know, certainly there's some cultural, linguistic, and contextual considerations that are important as well. Um, yeah, I don't know, Claire, if you have any thoughts on that situation. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely, definitely in our organisation, uh, we have a range of clients in various situations. So um, since uh, the 
um, internal borders in Australia opened up, we have quite a few families travelling around Australia and seeking out online therapy because it's going to suit their needs better, but they get the consistency of the thera- same, having the same therapist as they move from place to place. Um, probably one of the practical considerations has just been connectivity and um, and the devices that people have access to. So uh, whilst we don't need someone to sit in an office at, on a laptop, um, there does there does need to be a level of reliability with the connection, obviously. So, yeah, we've had clients do do sessions from campgrounds, from parks, um, all kinds of things. So, uh, obviously, within Australia itself, uh, our therapists, uh, you know, all um, eligible to practice in Australia and have the relevant qualifications, etc. We have had clients um, who have travelled overseas to visit family and things like that and um, therapists have maybe provided them with some strategies and things to work on while they're away and maybe had a couple of follow-up phone calls while they're away. Actually, now I think about it, the countries that those clients have been to, speech pathology isn't actually necessarily a profession in those countries anyway. So, um and those people have typically been there, um, yeah, just visiting for a short period of time. So, yes, we haven't necessarily managed it in a, an incredibly different way because we're so used to our clients existing in an online environment anyway. Hmm. Well, and you raise an interesting point there that, um, you know, in some countries, speech pathology isn't necessarily recognized prof- profession or it's conceptualized in a different way. You know, it might be a subset of uh, the medical profession or education, um, and it can kind of be difficult to chase up, you know, how governance for speech pathology in different countries. Mm. Um, you know, a couple of other things that I thought about um, are professional indemnity insurance is quite important, uh, you know, because a complaint can be made either in Australia or in the other country. Um, so we would need to verify that, you know, our insurance would cover the services to the country where the client's located, um, you know, particularly if, if the uh, Australian client is going to be there temporarily, if they're accessing funds like NDIS or Medicare um, or private health funds, we need to verify that those, um, that the international telepractice service would be uh, eligible for rebates under those those funds. Um, and then one last thing that I thought about related to this is uh, health record and privacy requirements in other countries. Um, and as well as the Australian privacy principles um, and how that would apply to our situation. So those are the regulations that guide how we manage health information and data. And we need to understand the technology that we're using um, and how information will be transmitted across national borders how and where the data will be stored and who can access it and how that's all going to be protected. And then we need to inform the clients about the risks to their health data um, and uh, as well as other risks, uh, you know, to the telepractice service like connectivity um, and get informed consent from them. So uh, there are some helpful resources about all this, um, you know, particularly privacy, security, informed consent on the SPA website. Yeah, we've definitely on the um, 
even like thinking about the platform that you're using. So we've, we were using one type of platform initially, good security settings, that kind of thing. But the, um, the amount of uh, data that that platform used was a limitation for people with lower um, internet capability. And so we decided to switch platforms and our tech guru went through various different platform options to see what was the most secure and then but also met our other requirement of being usable by the majority of people at least in Australia with different types of internet connection um, but you definitely have situations where a client saying oh you know my the computer's broken or something's happened could we just FaceTime and then um, we've trained all of our therapists to respond as they wish to, but basically to say, I'm happy to do that, but I need you to know that we use we use our platform because it's secure and I can't guarantee the, the security of something like FaceTime or whatever other thing we decide to use. So we always kind of seeking consent from the client and making sure they're aware of the security, potential security risks. Mm. And I like that you... Uh, you know, that you've consulted an IT professional with that because it's, it gets really complicated, right? Um, and we're speech pathologists and, and um, I think that's a good advice in general to, to seek some advice from um, people with the different uh, technical and legal aspects that are involved with this. Absolutely. I think you've both made some really nice like, considerations and ideas there. You're just trying to, at the end of the day, do right by the patient do right by the place that you're operating in as well. Yeah. Yeah. On a, on a kind of similar note, is it possible for an Australian speech pathologist to continue providing services to Australian clients while um, the speech pathologists themselves are travelling or then they relocate to another country? Yeah. From the association standpoint, um, it, it depends, <laughs> like everything else. Um, but... It, as speech pathologists, we need to find information in a lot of the same areas we just talked about, you know, uh, professional indemnity insurance, uh, privacy and data security requirements, informed consent. Um, and those in-country requirements, you know, they, they don't seem like they would be that important where the speech pathologist is traveling to um, or where they're living. That another country wouldn't necessarily have jurisdiction or even an interest in the services provided to Australia. But we still need to verify practice requirements in that location, you know, for the same reasons I mentioned that, um, uh, you know, ethical or legal issues can be investigated in that, in that country. Um, you know, with the, uh, in the reverse issue that we just talked about, I, I talked about health funds a bit. Um, and it seems a little more straightforward and, you know, where the, uh, provider is the one that's overseas, but it's still important to verify whether things like NDIS or a private health fund will cover the services that we're providing from another country, you know, especially for Medicare, which requires that speech pathologists bill from the location of the provider. Uh, one kind of tricky point for speech pathologists are working with children or police checks. Uh, so this can be pretty difficult to renew while you're overseas. So speech pathologists should make sure that your required checks will be valid throughout the time that you're traveling. Uh, yeah, we have a, uh, 
we have an OT who is an Australian OT who's based in the US. Um, and so she's also eligible to practice. She's gone through all of the processes to be eligible to practice in the US as well, but she just sees Australian clients through telepractice um, with our organisation. Um, the time difference can be helpful and sometimes a hindrance depending on what the time zone differences are. Um, but, um, yeah, having the fact that she's worked in Australia for a number of years beforehand um, understands the different systems that we have in Australia has meant that um, that's been a relatively seamless process for her whilst going through all the relevant checks and balances to make sure it's all um, legitimate. Oh, so I hadn't even considered time zones, but such an obvious one when you're looking at international <laughs> telepractice and certainly makes a big difference to how everyone's feeling and how things can work. Yeah. Another question, maybe Claire, I can direct this one to you as a start. Speech pathologists in Australia and other minority world countries, they're sometimes interested in kind of that volunteering or providing services to people in more majority world contexts. The professionals are probably interested in increasing equity and accessibility of services, but I wonder if they always know how to achieve this. So what could you say a speech pathologist uh, should know and do to help make their services equitable, sustainable and culturally responsive in this situation? Yeah, uh, I've thought a lot about this um, and mm. some colleagues and I um so um, Dr. B. Staley was the lead author on a paper that we um, was in the International Journal of Speech Language Pathology in 2020 about ethical practice in global contexts. So even really separate to telepractice um, or, you know, alongside telepractice is just this concept of working in majority world contexts. And uh, yeah, I, it's it's really complex. And having worked in remote Aboriginal communities for a lot of my career, it's not dissimilar. Um, it's not a dissimilar thought process, I suppose. And um, I think we all have to sort of go on our own journey in working things out as we go, but it's good to be able to help people to skip some of the mistakes you've made, um, and I've made plenty. Uh, but I suppose one of the first questions to ask is, am I the right person to be doing this? So, um, I think all the good intention in the world, you know, um, when it's misplaced can can cause problems. So um, even though there's the intention of wanting to be able to help, um, really questioning, am I the right person to do this? Even participating in this today, I was, went through that process of, am I the best person to be doing this? Been trying to call a Cambodian colleague of mine to see if they can... Um, chip in as well but um I'm, I know I'm going to take myself off track here so thinking if you're the best person to do it um thinking about what kind of commitment you're potentially making so is this going to be a something that you're interested in for a few months until you've kind of decided oh yeah I've done that tick tick that one off the list or is it going to be, are you prepared to kind of knuckle down and commit longer term? Um, and I guess just framing what it all looks like and um, do you have connections on the ground 
Do you understand the context? So I even grapple with this being the manager of a team that, um, you know, team members who work in metro, who, who live in metropolitan areas but service clients in rural remote areas in Australia. I actually am really at the point where I want to take them to rural towns so that they better understand the context that Australian uh, people live in because there are there is nuance in culture even amongst you know between Australians so if I'm grappling that with that in an Australian context then that just magnifies when you're looking at international contexts so I'd be really I'd be feeling really hesitant to try and set something up in a country that you haven't been to um, that you haven't um, that you don't really understand the language, you don't, and and I think you need to be somewhere for quite some time to start understanding the nuance, and you need to have connections with local people to um, to appreciate some of that nuance. So, when I was working in Cambodia, we had um, we employed Cambodian therapy assistants, and they were the eyes and ears, completely the eyes and ears of um, helping us to understand different kinds of interactions between different people, why a parent maybe responded to things in a certain way and um, obviously then learning the language as well, therefore appreciating, so getting to the point where you could conduct therapy in Khmer um, with a therapy assistant as well. So, And I was only there for two years and there's so much I still don't know. Um, would I feel confident delivering telehealth to Cambodian families somewhat um, but that's after two years of being there um, if I had somebody at the other end to assist a Cambodian person I, my confidence level would go up a little bit more um, but we also during COVID our clinic in Phnom Penh uh tried to move to telepractice and it was a terrible failure because kids were doing remote schooling for over 12 months um, and families were just completely over sitting on the computer plus a lot of people in Cambodia don't have laptops and so they do everything on their phone and they have blackouts all the time so power is unreliable so there's so much to consider and that's all the things I know from living in that country so um to try and do it when you've never been there I, I just feel like that's a very difficult undertaking um and not for the faint of heart and and I think just from an ethical perspective you'd have to question um whether it's the right whether it's the right move um, or whether if that's something you really think that you'd like to do, maybe committing to spending some time there or looking at local organisations that you could support in other ways. I, I'm really grateful to you know, hear your experience on that, Claire. And it's, it's such an important question that unfortunately I think sometimes gets breezed over a little bit when we, you know, talking about international telepractice, but um, we're working in a global context in general. Um, you know, and the work and consultations we did to develop the uh, upcoming position statement, there were a number of themes and recommendations that came up. Like one was that we take a deep dive personally and do some work to develop 
qualities that will help us um, with responsive global engagement and gaining new understanding. So these are things like uh, humility to recognize that our assumptions and worldviews are different to others um, and our capacity to reflect on how our perceptions of the uh, world can impact others. Um, and it's also important for us to understand power relations between countries and communities uh, and the role of privilege in all this and to you know, develop a sense of responsibility to promote equity. Uh, and, you know, Claire, I'm really glad that you mentioned um, that this isn't all that different to the, the responsibilities that we have as professionals in our home country. You know, these are things that we can work on here in Australia and have a positive impact on the work that, that we're doing with communities here. Um, and, you know, these points and, and other important thoughts on global competencies came from the work of Dr. B. Staley, um, Dr. Yvette Heider, and we've tried to, you know, include some resources for people in the position statement so they can... Um, start to you know, think about these competencies that will help them um, to take some steps to make sure that any service delivery models they use are accessible and inclusive and sustainable. Um, you know, so some of the, the actions that were recommended were um, engaging professionals in the other country. You know, Claire, I think you mentioned that. Um, and certainly the clients and the families so that we can engage in bi-directional learning um, so that any you know, service that we're offering um, is happening in a context that's meaningful um, to the language and culture and society and respectful of the worldviews in the community. Um, and you know, collaborating with local services in a way that doesn't compete with them. Um, and, you know, this uh, was mentioned in the article that you co-authored. Um, uh, what I think is really interesting is the, the concept of informed consent, which is really complex and gets really tricky across countries and, and cultures. Um, but, you know, there were some really interesting points raised about, you know, families not feeling comfortable correcting a speech pathologist's false assumptions or worrying that they could lose a service altogether if they didn't consent to every aspect of that service or even how well they understood what they were consenting to in the first place. So I, I think, you know, we can really find ourselves in some ethically problematic areas if we don't do the legwork first to, you know, consider maybe the unintended consequences of our service. And so that all starts with our own self-reflection and the conceptual frameworks that we're using to understand globalization and different worldviews. Yeah, I definitely think uh, it's probably not until you're in those contexts that you realise all of the host of assumptions that you come with. Um, and again, I learnt this from working in Indigenous communities as well, with even concepts of disability, concepts around causation or what constitutes disability or even if there is such a thing as a disability or um, and how that is viewed. Um, and then in Cambodia, um, really understanding the historical elements 
was very powerful in understanding why speech pathology hadn't really, um, you know, had a lot of progress in that country because through a really, you know, significant war, um, there were loads of people with physical disabilities who, you know, obviously took priority. And so physiotherapy has been an established profession there for I think over 15 years because the need has driven it. And it's very visible. Physios are lucky in that way that they have a very tangible um, profession and people can see what they do. Um, and I had the same when I was working in remote Australia and it was our community co-workers who really coined the terms to describe what speech therapy was once they got a handle on it. So I often was called a physio for, for talking um, and things like that. So, um, but yeah, the host of assumptions and even people's understanding of what therapy is. So definitely in Cambodia, it was the view was you're the doctor, I bring my child to you and you fix them, um, which we we're up against in Australia as well. It's not dissimilar, but it was definitely the norm there that that was the expectation. So asking families to follow up with exercises or things at home was that was deemed as us being our therapists being lazy and not doing their job properly. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was so, yes, it's so complex and you just, um, there's so many, you can you can think about it long and hard and you're still not going to kind of cover off every single thing that, you know, you could possibly sort of need to consider. Mm. I think you've made a really um, strong message there, Claire, and the point of you really need to just have, as much insight and understanding as possible of that kind of cultural context and those people that you're um, looking to work with, certainly. Another point to consider for you both is that staffing speech pathologists in Australia can be challenging and some practices and organisations may in fact look to hire or contract speech pathologists who are overseas. What do employers and speech pathologists who are in these other countries need to consider, do you think, when providing such telepractice services to Australian clients? Um, I've, I've got some thoughts from a logistical standpoint, but, uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of the cultural and linguistic and, you know, societal and systemic considerations we need to make as Australians practicing in other countries, um, they apply the other way around. Um, you know, so I um, I can tell you that as a, a North American who's migrated to Australia, that um, you know there are important differences even between English-speaking countries that have similarities in practice and standards and health systems. So, speech speech pathologists overseas really need to understand the context in which Australian clients communicate and um, the resources they need to access and. Um, they can advocate for and, and support their clients' needs here. Um, you know, it's important for overseas speech pathologists to follow our practice standards here, you know, including the professional standards and the code of ethics, but to engage with our profession uh, in our, uh, you know, our journey of reconciliation with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and to provide safe, responsive, and inclusive services to the incredibly diverse society that makes up Australia. Yeah, we've not, in our organisation, we haven't um, 
gone down this path to date. Um, so I probably haven't put a whole lot of thought into it. A slightly different touch that's a, a wee bit off topic, if you don't mind, is what we're finding through providing online services is that we're tapping into a really latent workforce of, I, I think I've got four occupational therapists with kids under 12 months working for us at the moment. Um, I've got mums returning to the workforce after multiple years of caring for children until they've gone to school. So we're finding that the flexibility that working from home allows is um, enabling us to tap into this workforce that probably realistically wouldn't be able to go back to work in a way that sort of suited them and their family until much later down the track. So that's just a slightly different take on it, I suppose. Um, like um, there, there are there are quite large numbers of people here, but um, for various reasons, they're they're not currently in the workforce or they've disengaged for different reasons. But we find that the flexibility we're able to provide has uh, has opened us up to this whole other field of practitioners who are kind of sitting there really wanting something that allows them to balance their desire to work with their desire to be be at home with their family. So, yeah, and, and you know, telepractice is just such an elegant solution for a lot of different scenarios. Um, you know, and domestically or in an international telepractice service, it's just important to make the considerations that we're, we're doing it ethically and appropriately and sustainably. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. We also actually are able, we have a couple of therapists with disabilities who are NDIS participants who wouldn't be able to work in a bricks and mortar office and working from home actually allows them to work full stop. So that's something we've, being fortunate it's kind of happened by luck but that we're really grateful because though having those kind of people on your team just offers so much more perspective and insight into the work that we're doing um so we've been yeah really fortunate to to be able to do that oh that's a yeah i'm really happy to hear that and, and how nice that uh, you know telepractice um brings their skills and perceptions you know to your practice and, and makes you know the professions um accessible to them mm. yeah. yeah it's been a bit of a revelation which is <laughs> i feel silly to say <laughs> seems really obvious if you think about it but yeah it's been yeah. great I, that, yeah i hate to transition to more of a dry note but i, I think it's also important to um to mention that you know a speech pathologist uh, who's located overseas would need to meet the practice requirements in Australia. Um, just similarly to what we talked about in other scenarios. Um, so this means they need to have a speech pathology qualification or university degree that meets Australian standards. So SBA's position is that a speech pathologist who's trained overseas should undergo a skills assessment before they offer an international telepractice service to Australia. And that can be performed through the mutual recognition agreement or the, uh, remembering the acronym, um, the Overseas Qualification Competency Assessment. Um, and there's lots of information about that on our website. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the issues we've already discussed would be important to consider professional indemnity insurance, verification that Australian health funds would cover that service. Um, and 
working with children checks and police checks tend to be a real sticking point for this situation, just because most Australian states and territories require a check that's individual to that state or territory. Um, and that can be difficult to do when you are located overseas, but some important things to look into there. Yeah, definitely. Just one more thing to consider as well, kind of coming from my point of view, um, as a speech pathologist who's very new to profession, I only recently graduated, someone who's similar in my position, how do you think a, a speech pathologist so early in their career could get involved in such opportunities of international telepractice if they're interested? That's a good question. Um, I think Claire might have a little more experience <laughs> with this than I do. Um, mm. uh, well, yes, we, when I was in Cambodia, we had requests from very keen students to be involved, whether that was coming and volunteering for a month uh, while they were travelling or being involved while they were still in Australia. Um, I think some of the challenges with that, and again, you know, you don't want to curb people's enthusiasm or their intentions, but um, we weren't about to put a student into a clinic room doing therapy with our clients because we we were employing experienced practitioners to provide a high-quality service. And I think this is something that we also talk about in our paper, the sort of something is better than nothing potential attitude sometimes that, um, oh, well, if the student's here for the month, why not give them a few clients? But we were pretty firm on not doing that. They were welcome to observe sessions and learn. Um, and then what was really actually helpful for us was having them help with things like resource development and things that we often didn't get a chance to kind of do um, or work on sort of back-end aspects and for a lot of these enthusiastic students, that didn't particularly appeal to them, um, unfortunately, but that that was genuinely what was helpful for us. Um, uh, and you also have scenarios of students and new grads maybe going to countries like Cambodia and then providing training to different organisations or schools and things like this. And, again, um, whilst I appreciate that, students are sort of on the cutting edge of new research by nature of you know being at university um, again we kind of have to go through that process of what they know about the culture and the country that they'd be going into what they know about the historical nature of that of the underlying knowledge that people have there's just but I think sometimes all of that gets superseded by this desire to kind of come and help with your new skills and um it's a really, uh, instead of a, hey, I'm going to do all these things to help you, it's like, I'd love to be involved. How can I be of most help? And then if you're not that a big fan of what the response is, then that's okay. But I think um, not trying to force things too much um, and respecting that there are other people that have uh, maybe more experience or more culturally embedded experience who can potentially offer something more impactful and that's okay. And maybe it's something for down the track. Um, but you, you know, for example, we've had, we had a student becoming involved as a volunteer with OIC 
several years ago and she's now on the board of OAC Australia. She's still never been to Cambodia. She just plugs away because she believes in the mission and sees people on the ground who are there living there and understanding that they can make more of an impact than her in Australia. But she's been a massive supporter in the background, helping with fundraising and these kinds of things. But she made a decision, you know, I I can't be in Cambodia, but I still really believe in what they're trying to do. So this is how I'm going to support it. Yeah. Yeah. I would say from my experience um, with speech pathologists, um, there are a lot of opportunities that, that kind of just arise. Um, and my hope is that the position statement and this conversation today and some of the resources we're trying to point you towards can, can help speech pathologists to assess those opportunities and determine if they're the right person for them and determine what supports they'll need to, you know, appropriately engage in them and, and to provide an, um, an ethical and sustainable service in the, the international telepractice context. Entirely. I think you've both made some yeah, very valuable points to consider there, definitely. I've learned a lot personally. Thank you, Nathan and Claire, so much for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you both today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode and be sure to join us next week where we'll be back with another inspiring conversation. Thank you and goodbye. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.